everybody today? Tired? <laughs> oh, I've got to help her today. Okay. You're going to help me? All right. Um, when I was looking at the scripture and looking at all the different possibilities, the one part that always jumps out to me in this passage is the last part when Jesus said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And every time I read that, I think of this book. Anybody familiar with this book? Are You My Mother? The little baby bird that uh, hatches and the mama goes out to find food and it encounters a cat and a dog and a cow and a boat and an airplane and all those things until it gets, and none of those are his mother, until it gets to the snort. And the snort says, hmm, I'm not your mother, but I'll help you out. And it takes the baby bird back and puts the baby bird in its nest. So sometimes I think that the snort is like a mother. But I think also the snort is kind of like us as Christians. When I was looking through, I thought, that's really odd that Jesus would say, well, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Because he knew who they were. So why, and then why would he say, well, these people are my mother and my brother? His, parent, his mother is standing right outside the door. You can hear this. And I think sometimes we look at that and say, oh, he's just shunning them and trying to elevate the, the disciples above them. But I think what he's actually trying to do is elevate the disciples to the level of the love he has for his mother and his brothers. Um, we all love our families, or we're supposed to anyway. That's part of what it's all about, right? We love our families. And Jesus loved his family, his earthly family, but his, also his spiritual family. And so I've brought several things with me to make a mess, as I usually do. So just bear with me a minute till I get it all out here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. All right, so I have a jar, and I have some water, and I'm going to put the water in the jar. Yeah, that looks good. Okay, so that represents us in the jar, okay? And then I have some oil. I wrapped that up really good, because last time I brought oil, I made a mess in my basket. So some oil. We're going to put some oil in here. Okay, so now we have Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, and we have the rest of us, the disciples. What happens when we stir them up together? Do they mix up well? No, they don't. I could stir and stir and stir and it might sort of look like it, but it always separates again. Always. Oil and water don't mix. However, we do have Jesus. And Jesus, and I didn't realize this until I did this the other day. Probably be easier if I just poured it. Jesus really loves us. A lot of Jesus. Okay. So, when we stir this, 
oil and the water and the soap become one. They do not separate. Uh, if you leave the sit, I left it sit overnight, and it didn't separate. It was the weirdest thing. But that's what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. He elevates us to the level of family with his own mother and his own brother and with God. And that's what's so incredible about Jesus. Even though we're sinners, even though we're human, we fail, he invites us to be part of his incredible family, his loving, heavenly family, his eternal family. And so I'm just really glad that I don't have to worry about hunting around for my mother because my mother and my brothers and sisters are all right here and at home and in heaven because we're all one through Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us with an incredible love that goes beyond anything we could even imagine. We thank you for elevating us to the level of your family, your brothers, your sister, your mother. And we ask that you would help us to be worthy of that calling. Help us to show forth your love in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a hard passage, and there's this part in your Bible that says that teachers are going to be judged with greater severity, so I need your help, Lord. Um, please, if there is anything in what I've prepared today that is not your word, I pray that you will change it, that I will speak the word of life, which is Jesus Christ. Um, and that we will hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So some of you have heard about this already. Um, I recently had a mouse in the cabin air filter of my car. When I say recently, I mean two months ago. It still smells like a mouse <laughs> in my car. <laughs> um, I know there are a few people here who know about cars. Freddie, for example. Um, can you tell us what the point of a cabin air filter is? Right. It's supposed to. Exactly. Do you? We'll talk about that after. <laughs> um, so, yes, Freddie sort of preached the sermon just now. The air filter is supposed to keep the air in the part of the car where the people sit clean so that you can safely and pleasantly get to your destination. But if there's a mouse in there, uh, it does kind of defeat the purpose. I didn't do anything intentionally destructive to my car. I happen to live in a place that has a lot of wildlife. We've already seen some foxes and a bear. Those don't fit in a car air filter, so that's probably why I haven't found those in there. But we also have smaller wildlife, like chipmunks and mice. And so I didn't 
do anything to make the mice get into my car. I didn't put, I didn't make it hospitable to them on purpose. I didn't put food in the air filter compartment. Um, but I will confess, I did ignore the signs. One Sunday when I was getting in the car to drive here, um, I noticed a very small amount of evidence on the dashboard that there might be mice in my car. And I did not immediately do anything about it. And a week later, I could tell that there had been mice in my car and they were probably dead. It did not smell good. So here's another question. Are cabin air filters in cars good or bad? Right, they're good. But when the chamber that they're in becomes possessed by the evil spirit of a pack of stinky hantavirus carrying rodents, it's no longer good. <laughs> right? The thing itself is good, but that particular one is not good anymore. It's no longer for fulfilling its purpose, like Freddie said. It can at minimum make the person in the car really miserable. At maximum, it can actually make the person in the car pretty sick. It, the filter needs to be replaced and deeper cleaning needs to occur. Okay, let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. We've actually turned a corner in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we talked about Sabbath and Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. And even though nothing apparently spectacular happened in that chapter, the disciples ate some grain in a field and Jesus healed a guy whose hand was all messed up. Um, that was actually a spiritual showdown between the forces of the kingdom of heaven and the forces of the empire of the world, in, the, in this case, in the person of the Pharisees. Jesus claiming lordship of the Sabbath and proving that he was lord of the Sabbath by doing good to nobodies on the Sabbath is what made the Pharisees decide that Jesus needed to die. The Sabbath was so significant that it was a turning point in Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry even, it was the place at which it's decided who gets to be in charge. So now the Pharisees have decided Jesus needs to die, and everything that we see with them, any, every story we see with them in it from here on out, they are looking to trap Jesus. They are watching every move. They are listening to everything that he says in order to turn it around so that they can have some basis on which to bring him to trial. Last week we saw that they could almost plausibly argue that Jesus had broken the law of God because he did some work on the Sabbath, even though really if he broke anything, he was just breaking the Pharisees' expanded version of the Sabbath. Um, but it's really hard. In the beginning of this passage, he has just cast a demon out of a man the demon in this particular case had made it so the man could not see and could not speak. And Jesus cast the demon out, and now the man can see and speak. And it's really hard to figure out how that could be a sin, how that could possibly be a bad thing, unless, which is what the Pharisees try to argue, the demon left because an even greater demon 
told it to leave. So the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, the, the people see this miracle and they say, this must be the son of David, that is, the Messiah that God promised, that we have evidence about in our prophets and in our law. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 that's not true. It's, he's actually also possessed. He just has the prince of the demons in him, and that demon told the other demons to leave. And so this whole chapter is really hard and really kind of disturbing, and there's a lot of parts in it. We can't pick out everything in here. Um, but basically the, the timeline or whatever is Jesus heals the demoniac. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of being a demoniac. Jesus kind of turns their accusation around and implies that maybe actually the spirits that are influencing them are not godly um, and that they have possibly committed a sin which can't be forgiven. And then Jesus' family shows up and he indicates a greater family bond with those who hear God's word and obey it versus his family. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. Um, there are there are three really troubling parts of this passage, I think. Um, the first one is, there is an unforgivable sin. That's troubling. The second one is this weird story that Jesus tells about the demon who leaves a person and then can't find a place to rest, so it says, I'll go back to that same person and bring seven of his buddies. That's also disturbing. Can a person be repossessed by a demon? Um, and then the third one is, I agree with Barb that Jesus does elevate his um, followers to the level of family, but in the context of this passage, he does seem to be saying, my loyalty is greater to those people who are following, the, who hear God's word and obey it, versus my biological family. At that point, his biological family did not believe in him. So, all three of those things are troubling. Um, they are really hard to explain. And so, we're going to try to um, touch on each one of those, but let's work into it. So, there's a, a Russian author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he famously said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. We could reword that for the purposes of this series and say the line between kingdom and empire passes through every human heart. We all have things in us that want to be in control, that want to have power, that would like to be better than other people, and things that are compassionate and have been influenced by God and want the good for other people. And it's really hard sometimes to pick those apart, and it can be even harder, I think, in a, in a religious context, in a church or a synagogue, because we have the Word of God and we can sometimes have a hard time realizing when we're allowing our more selfish motives to influence what we think is godly. I think this is part of the Pharisees' problem. Um, it can be hard to tell the difference, too, because, well, here's a question. Are there, are there good actions, like inherently good actions? Yes. Are there inherently evil actions? Yeah, there are. 
but the source of the good and evil actions or the source of the good and evil within maybe neutral actions doesn't come from the actions. It comes from what's in here. Jesus says that in verse 34. Um, well, he actually implies it in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, if you look at a person lustfully, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. What's happening in here is what influences what comes out here. And in verse 34, he says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So we have been looking at these opposing forces with this very fine line that's kind of hard to, to pull apart. Um, and we've looked, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at it in very earthy human situations. We've seen it play out in illness, and we've seen it play out in storms, and in fear, and in faith. But now we're kind of looking under the hood. And the question for today is, what kind of air, what kind of spirit is blowing through a life? This does kind of go back to the air filter analogy, because interestingly, the word in both Hebrew and Greek for spirit and breath and air or wind is all the same word. So it's all connected. We want the spirit, the breath, the wind of God to be flowing through our lives, but sometimes things get in there and there's some other spirit that's blowing in there instead. So, if the Pharisees were cars, we could further this analogy and say that maybe the air filter is the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures. This is the thing, it is a good thing, it is God-given, it is the thing through which everything else is supposed to be filtered, and it's designed for human flourishing. So you can safely and comfortably and pleasantly get to your destination. The compartment that the air filter rests in, we could actually even further analogize and, call, and say that maybe that's the soul. In Hebrew, the concept of the soul is loosely connected with, they have this concept called nephesh, and weirdly, their idea, for the ancient Hebrews, the idea was that your soul, your nephesh, was in your throat. So again, there's this breathing, this air thing going on here. It happened then, and it still happens now, that sometimes, even those of us who have, as Psalm 119 says, hidden God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him, People who very dutifully or even devotedly obey the law to the letter have a family of mice living in and defiling our souls. Sometimes mice just get in there. The Pharisees were not possessed by demons in the same way that the man at the beginning of the story was that Jesus healed. They could see, they could speak, they weren't raving, but spiritually they were blind. And the things that they thought and that they spoke revealed what was filling their hearts. And what was filling their hearts, frankly, stank and was making other people sick or keeping people sick. They didn't want the man with the withered hand healed last week. They didn't want the disciples to eat. They don't care that this guy that had a demon was freed. There is something in their souls that's getting in the way and affecting the filter 
of the law and the prophets so that they cannot, because they're, it's so full of other stuff, they actually can't fulfill the scriptures that they think are so important to them. Even worse, they're so used to the stink, they think it's normal. And they see that Jesus, who has the pure spirit of God flowing through him, they think he stinks. Oh, you're the guy with the demon. That's messed up. I hope I never get to the point where the way my car smells right now <laughs> it seems normal to me. <laughs> so this is our question. What spirit, what air, what breath, what wind is blowing through us? If we read this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's kind of a back and forth, and it's a little bit like, you have a demon, no, you have a demon, no, you have a demon, which it doesn't play out that way, but it, that's kind of between the lines. But we can also read between the lines both warning and hope. Verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household, remember the household part for later, divided against itself will not stand. So this is a warning. A warning that any household, Jesus is talking about if, the, if a demon cast out another demon, that implies a divided household. But any household that's divided cannot stand. Is there division among the chosen people? Whether that is these chosen people, the Israelites, kind of represented by these Pharisees, or even in, among Christians today, where is their division? Division in the household will bring it down. That's the warning. But verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom, or as we've been using it, empire, stand? Here's the hope. Jesus doesn't flat out state this, but we know, because we know the rest of the story, Satan's empire is divided and it is going down. It is actually going to go down. Jesus is going to bring it down. It's divided. And if Jesus is saying, how can his kingdom possibly stand? It can't. And he knows that. Verse 27. If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? This is a warning. It's almost like Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, how do you know demons can drive out other demons. Check what spirit is flowing through you. By whom do your disciples, whom do your people drive them out? He's not saying, yeah, you're, you are driving them out by other demons, but he is saying, check your spirit. Check what is flowing through you. Where is your basis of power? Verse 29. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? This, Jesus is implying, tying up the strong man is what you have so far failed to do. You have not tied up empire in your lives, and therefore you and those you lead are in captivity instead of the strong man. Tie that guy up. Then you can help bring people out. 
what he is saying, this is the hope, I am tying up the strong man and carrying off his goods. The strong man is Satan. The goods are the people. Jesus is tying up that guy and bringing people to freedom, to healing, and to reconciliation. That's the gospel. But now we get to the sticky parts. In verses 30 to 32, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. You guys, this terrifies me to preach on. I'm telling you, because if I interpret this the wrong way, am I actually going to commit this sin that he's talking about? I don't think so, but um, it's not because of me, and it's not because I have this all figured out. So, keep, as you're listening, um, keep your minds on God and ask God to help you and me to understand this better. I think this warning is particularly for religious types like us, which is why it's really important. Um, there are people who have not yet met Jesus, who don't yet follow Jesus, have not committed their lives to Jesus, who don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they don't know him, and they don't know they should, and so they will attribute things to the Holy Spirit and say that other things are evil, that are maybe backwards, and there is grace for that. But for us, who are following Jesus, if we have truly committed our lives to Jesus and we have the Spirit living in us, then we need to sit up and take notice. So, surely there are many things that people do in God's name even, that should not be attributed to God's Spirit. For example, I have heard a few times in different contexts, I haven't heard this here, but um, people say something like, well, I just had this connection with this person. Even though I'm married to this other person, I had this connection with this person, and so God told me that we were supposed to be together instead, so that's why we had this affair. That's not from the Spirit of God. We are told to test the spirits. Here's the thing, though. Only the Holy Spirit in our lives gives us the ability to accurately test the spirits. The, um, one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of discernment. We will not be able to accurately determine what is really from the Spirit of God and what is not if we are not in an active relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here, at least, is not talking about taking something that someone is doing that's bad and saying, oh, the Spirit told me to do it. He's not talking about giving the Spirit credit for something bad. He's talking about giving demons credit for something the Holy Spirit did. This is what the Pharisees have done. They have said, Jesus the Spirit in you is not the Holy Spirit of God, it's a demon. That's serious, and that is what Jesus is reacting against. 
It is more serious to give demons credit for stuff the Spirit of God is doing than the other way around. And there's a few reasons for why. Here's one reason. First of all, God can and does work through anything, even bad things, to turn it around for his glory and people's good. God will do that. He is more powerful than our evil. So he can do that. And the second reason, it's actually offensive to give a demon credit for something that God did. Right? But God is pretty merciful, and he has a pretty thick skin, I think. The reason this sin, it's not unforgivable because it offends God. The reason it's unforgivable is the Spirit is the one through whom we get forgiveness. Jesus Christ died so that our sins could be forgiven. But we receive that forgiveness by the Holy Spirit, and if we're shutting him out, we can't be forgiven because we can't, because the forgiveness is over there. It's not that God's saying, oh, that just made me mad. Forget it. I'm never going to forgive you. It's God saying, you can't actually have that if you're not taking it. If you're going to give the Spirit of God, if you're going to give a demon credit for what the Spirit of God is doing, then you don't know who the Spirit is. And the Spirit is not informing your life. And so how can you possibly be forgiven? When we call the Holy Spirit evil, we are refusing forgiveness for our own selves. We are not able to be forgiven if we refuse to let the Spirit in and to let the Spirit do what the Spirit is going to do in the world around us. Jesus then gives us an example of what happens when we filter out the Holy Spirit of forgiveness. This is like taking the word of, this is what the Pharisees are doing, taking the word of God, the filter, and filtering out the Spirit of God, which is what makes the, there be a point to the filter. Like Freddie said, if it's not filtering out the bad and letting in the good, what's the point of the filter? So, the Pharisees say, Jesus says this thing about the, about the unforgivable sin and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and then maybe the Pharisees are a little uncomfortable, or maybe this is a different conversation. It's a little unclear the way that Matthew wrote it. But they say, well, show us a sign. If you show us a miracle, which, by the way, he already did when he cast the demon out of the man, then maybe we'll believe that you actually have the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that's just the... That's just an excuse. So he tells, he says a few more things, but he tells this story about the demon that leaves and then comes back with seven pals. This story is not about the formerly demonized man that Jesus healed. This story is actually about the Pharisees. Jesus is telling them this either after, immediately after this rant that he's already gone through, or it's another conversation. In either case, he's talking to the Pharisees. And he is not necessarily talking about um, demon possession. He can be. I mean, that's the story that he's telling, but it can apply to any person who is under any influence of sin or addiction, not just demon possession. 
in the context, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and people like them who think, well, I'm a leader of the people of God and I am righteous. They're secure in their own righteousness and they fail to love and care for people in need. They fail to recognize the kingdom of God when it is right there in front of them, which Jesus says in verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The spirit of God does the kingdom work. So imagine if the Pharisees, this is part of this story about the seven demons. Trust me, getting there. Imagine if the Pharisees said, oh my word, you're right. We are so self-righteous. That's sinful. Never mind. We're not going to be self-righteous anymore. But they still didn't like Jesus and they didn't want anything to do with what the spirit was doing in his kingdom. And so they went to the opposite extreme and they said, you know what? That law was too restrictive. We're just going to, we don't need to be self-righteous anymore. We were so mean to people. We're just going to let them do whatever they want. You guys, the solution is not to just get rid of the whole air filter. Right? Right. <laughs> Fix it. Get a new air filter. Jesus talks about new wineskins. Then fill the compartment with something that the vermin can't tolerate so they don't come back. That is my next job. Well, actually, so this is where the analogy breaks down a little because I have some dryer sheets in there. They also stink. But, <laughs> um, but we can imagine for our analogy that the Holy Spirit is, it's like the Holy Spirit is a whole new kind of air that just has everything that we need for life and it smells good and we, and that, pumping that through the air filter is so appalling to the mice and the rats spiritually that they will not come back in there. Anyway, you have to put something else in there so that the mice won't come back because if you don't, they will, as I found out, because there was another mouse nest on my engine. <laughs> with a restored relationship to scripture with the pure spirit blowing through scripture and interpreting it to us we ourselves are restored and we can bring health and help and freedom to those who encounter us and then we get to the end of this chapter verses 46 to 50 is this a random depressing add-on who is my mother and who are my brothers I mean, I guess maybe it's encouraging that even Jesus had a dysfunctional family. <laughs> he did. In the, um, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us this story in Mark 3, and he begins it. He actually starts the story with the family asking for Jesus, and then this whole conversation about the demons happens and the blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And then somebody tells him that his family's looking for him, so that story is dividing the household. I don't know why Matthew doesn't tell it that way. He's probably making another point, but I feel like this is important for what we're looking at today. In Mark, Jesus' family comes to talk to Jesus, not just to talk to him, but because they want to take charge of him because they think he's out of his mind. So they are also blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 
they're saying the spirit in him is not the spirit of God, it's the spirit of crazy. In Mark, Mark links their request to see Jesus and take Jesus with the Pharisees' comment that Jesus cast out demons by the power of a demon. They're doing the same thing. They're both blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so, even though this sounds super depressing, it's actually really hopeful. It might be hard for us to face the fact that Jesus is saying that spiritual family ties are more important than blood ties. But this is actually where the hope is because we know if we read the rest of the story and if we know the rest of the New Testament, the people in Jesus' family who committed this unforgivable sin actually eventually acknowledge Jesus, their son or their brother, as Lord. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They write books in the New Testament and they are forgiven. So when you ask yourself, because you probably are, and I definitely have, have I committed the unforgivable sin? What we're really asking is, have I refused to let God's spirit take the wheel of my life? Have I refused, have I called God's spirit and what God's spirit is doing evil in order to keep God at bay? And if the answer is yes, remember Jesus' family did too, and they were forgiven. And Jesus asked the Father to forgive the people who crucified him, which included the Pharisees who he was talking to in this story. They are committing the unforgivable sin right here, and Jesus asked the Father to forgive them. The unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is a trajectory sin. The Pharisees and people like them expect that and, and treat people as if you commit one infraction, you're done. The end, kaput. But the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is something that is unforgivable when it happens over a lifetime. At some point, you get to the point where you can't actually receive the Holy Spirit there's way too many mice in your air filter. So, for example, um, I grew up in a context where I used to think speaking in tongues was demonic. I don't think that anymore. Did I, because I thought that one time, does that mean that I can't be forgiven? I don't believe so. I believe the Holy Spirit, I have been open to the Holy Spirit to show me that. There are people who abuse the gifts of the Spirit, for sure, but just because someone speaks in tongues doesn't mean it's demonic. Thank God, because I am related to some people who do that. <laughs> and I have been blessed and freed in a kingdom way by someone praying for me in tongues. So, but the where it's an unforgivable sin is when we are regularly exposed to the gospel work of the Spirit around us, and we experience it, we see it happening, we feel it in our spirits, and we still say no. Every single time, no, 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 that's not the Spirit, that's bad, I don't want to see it, that is when it becomes unforgivable. 
our hearts become completely filled up with everything but the spirit. And then when you let the mice run through your car, they chew the wires, they get into the cabin, they chew up the seats. Suddenly, the only thing you can do with your car is take it to the dump because it doesn't drive. No one wants to sit in it. It stinks. You're going to get sick. That's what happens when we perpetually refuse to let the Holy Spirit into our lives. It's not God's fault. We just didn't let him in. But there's hope. I've had mice in my car. They did some damage, but they're gone now. I keep checking. <laughs> um, the scent isn't totally gone, but it is going away. I have some things in there. I'm going to talk to you about that spray, Freddie. Um, it is being restored, and it is well on its way to being a car that I can feel comfortable driving again. <laughs> Jesus speaks really strong words to the self-righteous, spirit-blaspheming Pharisees, and even to his family. Not because he hates them, not because he doesn't want them to be forgiven, but because he loves them and he does want them to be. Both in this age and in the age to come. And he wants that for us too. Both for those of us who have lived lives of blatant disobedience against God and those of us who have been good kids but shut ourselves off to the Spirit's work of mercy. Forgiveness is why Jesus showed up. He just wants us to let him, by his spirit, into our souls so that the pure air of his spirit can flow through. He made us to be more than cars. He wants us to be his family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that we are not perfect, and we need your help to discern the spirits. But we want to be open to your spirit, and we want to be attuned to be able to tell the difference for real between what's good and kingdom furthering and uh, brings your gospel of freedom and reconciliation and healing to the people around us, and to not allow the the vermin um, of selfishness and controllingness and that, those kinds of things into our lives. We need your spirit to blow through our souls, to clean us out, to help us to look more like Jesus, to think and speak and live like him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.